Near the beginning of A Room of One's Own, Virginia Woolf writes, It is a curious fact that novelists have a way of making us believe that luncheon parties are invariably memorable for something very witty that was said, or for something very wise that was done, but they seldom spare a word for what was eaten. It is part of the novelist's convention not to mention soup and salmon and ducklings, as if soup and salmon and ducklings were of no importance whatsoever, as if nobody ever smoked a cigar or drank a glass of wine. Land of Milk and Honey by C. Pam Jong denies Wolf's convention and then some. Indeed, one might go as far as to say that it is in the exquisite descriptions of what is cooked and eaten in this novel, and a lot of very strange things are cooked and eaten as the plot spirals ahead, that much of the substance, much of the heft, much of the, dare I say it, meat of the novel lies. In a near future in which a mysterious smog has enveloped the world, devastating crops and biodiversity, our narrator takes a job as a chef at an isolated mountain colony, run by a wealthy entrepreneur and his daughter, a visionary scientist. However, what she first takes to be little more than a decadent end-times holiday camp for the perennially wealthy, she soon discovers is much more ambitious and potentially much more sinister. Roxane Gay described Land of Milk and Honey as truly exceptional, while The Guardian reviewer called it a rich novel of ideas insisting on moral complexity in the end times, adding, it's also a startling prose hymn to food and sex, love and violence, power and resistance. C. Pam Jong, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'd like to begin, when I was reading this book, I realised there were perhaps two imaginative leaps that took place for you to compose it. The first, I guess, was the imaginative leap into the future, into this um, climate catastrophe, which I mentioned in the introduction. But the other imaginative leap seemed to me to be into the mind of a chef. Now, as somebody who who likes food, but is very bad at describing it and talking about it and articulating the sensations it gives me. Um, I was wondering for you whether one or the other of those imaginative leaps proved the more the more difficult in composing this book. I don't think either was difficult for me, frankly. <laughs> um, oddly enough, I think that a lot of the labels that get applied to fiction are not in the minds of the writers when we're working, right? Um, so I'll address the food first. I have always, actually, no, not always enjoyed food. Um, but for most of my adult life, I've been really curious about food. And that actually comes from having a background as a quite picky and sometimes even squeamish eater. Mm. Um, as a child, my family was impoverished Chinese Americans. And so I mostly just ate what was cooked at home, which was Chinese food. And we rarely were able to go out and eat. And when we did, it was usually Chinese food. So mm -hmm. a lot of um, Western foods, especially fine dining Western food of the kind cooked in this novel by the chef protagonist was out of my reach um, mm -hmm. from a financial perspective and from a cultural perspective. And so it wasn't until I was in my late teens, I think it was the maybe winter of senior year of high school when we had already gotten into college. So it was sort of like this strange dead space where you could do whatever you wanted. And I started reading food blogs, mm. not cooking blogs, but sort of blogs of people who were dining out. And so it was really the narrative portal mm. that brought me to a curiosity of, about food. It wasn't because I had you know seen a beautiful dish passed in front of my eyes at a restaurant and wanted to eat it. It was because I was wondering why people came to that plate, what the chefs were making, um, why this dish was chosen at this moment and what it represented, right? Mm -hmm. 
food, um, and I love your the vision, your wolf quote that you just read. Food to me has never just been a set piece. It's always been about what it means and what leads up to it. So that wasn't a very hard imaginative leap for me to take because as an adult, um, I became quite an interested and adventurous eater, um, and especially curious about the often unspoken socioeconomic and cultural hierarchies mm. behind the food that I was eating. Um, but yeah, and then back to the dystopian for a moment. I mean, I wrote this book in early 2021, right? When we were in what I'll call the middle <laughs> of the pandemic, I suppose. Um, and so it was a time when the world felt very small mm -hmm. and we were all trapped in our houses. So it was not that far of a leap to take to imagine this narrator who moves into a very isolated and strange place where um, machinations are happening behind the scenes, but her life is often quite cut off from the rest. Mm -hmm. And that was something that really struck me actually while reading the book was this sort of near future, um, I'm not sure if apocalypse is quite the word, but certainly sort of um, climactic catastrophe that has taken place. I thought if I had read this maybe 10 years ago, uh, it would have seemed sort of very much in the realms of science fiction. But reading it today, both the what is happening with the, the smog and also the fact that these kind of um, sort of uh, isolated billionaires are forming these, <laughs> these, sort of these colonies or the separating themselves from the rest of the world did feel sort of almost depressingly possible and depressingly close to uh, the time we were living in. Yeah, I mean, Elon Musk's SpaceX venture was mm -hmm. launched um, in the last couple of years. And yeah, I don't know if I would call it post-apocalyptic. I call it sort of right now, plus or minus maybe one to three years, to be honest, mm -hmm. because the toxic smog that envelops the world in my novel was pretty directly inspired by the wildfire smoke um, mm -hmm. that I had been seeing in California and on the West Coast of the United States for by this point, I think seven or eight years, there's been a regular fire season. And I know that this past summer, um, that kind of wildfire smoke enveloped Europe. So mm -hmm. I think there are a lot more people who are kind of waking up to the reality of it. There has been a reality for other for people in certain parts of the world for quite a long time. And, and was that the sort of, I guess, the the imaginative process that, that led to the book? You, you saw this phenomenon taking place and you then thought about the kind of person whose life that could affect and then and that's how the sort of the chef came into being or was it a little bit more sort of organic and interconnected than that yeah so oddly enough um though i wrote the book in a bleak time its genesis didn't come about from the bleakness of environment it actually came from a kind of wonderful moment um so you know i had been cut off from a lot of many of us had been cut off from a lot of ordinary human pleasures during the pandemic, among them the pleasures of community and the pleasures of communal dining. Uh, and it was soon after um, one of my first meals out again in 2021. And I had it at this beautiful Filipino restaurant in Seattle where I was living at the time mm -hmm. with my partner and with a close friend who was a doctor at the time. So you can only imagine how hard his year had been and the things that he had seen. And you know, when we first sat down and we're catching up and talking over the facts of the year, everything felt very heavy and difficult and dark. And then the food arrived at the mm -hmm. table. 
And the atmosphere just shifted. And it wasn't as if those really big issues and concerns disappeared. But at that moment, we were sort of plunged back into our bodies. We Mm -hmm. had to be incredibly present to taste, to smell, to perceive. And there is this kind of undeniable physicality to Mm -hmm. our enjoyment that kind of quieted the mind a bit, the anxieties of the mind. Um, And it was really that moment of joyousness Mm. and this idea that certainly my friend who had done such difficult and important work deserved this moment of pleasure. Um, That kind of led me to question, well, don't I deserve it? Doesn't everyone observe it, in fact, right? Like, what are we working towards as a human species, if not a future where everyone is allowed to have this, right? We Mm -hmm. don't want to kind of become flesh automatons. We're only working for causes that we consider good um, or working for efficiency's sake. Mm -hmm. And that that puts me in mind of something else, which I'd like to come on to talk about later, is that the different connotations that food have, um, you know, the different associations it brings up in different people. But before we get onto that, I'd, I'd like to, to talk a little bit about our, our narrator because uh, the voice feels fully formed from the, the first page, like very distinct. And even though I couldn't necessarily articulate it, I had a very strong sense of character from the, from the very first page, like almost like it was a, a voice which I'd heard before somewhere. Was that how she came to you and would you be able to for our readers who haven't our listeners I should say who haven't yet met her would you be able to introduce our narrator a little bit yeah her voice came to me first um Mm. a voice always comes to me first and in this case it was a voice asking a question of very particular urgency so Mm. our narrator is a Chinese American chef who starts the novel in London and she has actually for a while been away from home, which is California for her, sort of traveling with this ambition to be a great famous, you know, Michelin starred chef Mm -hmm. of French haute cuisine. Um, But in the last few years preceding the opening of the novel, she has been in a kind of exile because America has closed its borders due to Mm -hmm. the smog and due to a massive famine and she simply cannot go home. And So as the world itself is sort of collapsing, her culinary world specifically is really in dire straits. Um, Nobody is really eating real food anymore because produce for the most part cannot be grown. They're eating this kind of gray soylent-like meal (laughs) replacement. Um, So it's really this question of like, who are you then, right? When the ambition that you have defined yourself by is no longer possible. How do you find a source of meaning again in a world that feels completely changed? And this question is so urgent that the moment the possibility of cooking in the old way comes again, she takes it. And there's this Mm -hmm. job that is offered to cook at this mountaintop colony of the uber wealthy. And she lies through her teeth in order to get it, sort of makes sure that she the mold of this job as exactly as she can. And so the story really starts off with this this question of who has she become in mm. order to survive on this mountaintop? And is she okay with those kinds of concessions? On my second pass, I spotted a box behind the kitchen door. 
Impressed me, this note said. Inside were flour, vanilla, eggs. I'd expected a test, of course. A textbook omelet or a flawless consomme to prove the French training the job demanded. Pastry, no. Giddiness abandoned me as I unpacked baking soda, sugar, milk. Even the voluptuousness of the butter couldn't distract from thoughts of my soddy experience in patisserie and the precarity of my work visa and what would happen where I turned away. And then I was no longer thinking because at the bottom of the box, I touched something as warm as skin, as yielding as a woman's inner thigh, strawberries. Amen, I heard myself say, wet-mouthed. I was surprised my breath didn't smudge the air. Red, that color of desire. I began again and said the whole prayer, our father through daily bread. Not my words. They belonged to a pastry chef I'd loved, a lapsed Catholic who rediscovered his faith each morning as he fingered the day's shipment of fruit and forgot it anew each afternoon as we fucked among the butter and jam. He was the first to take seriously my appetite, my ambitions. He never stored a strawberry cold. Close to the stem, he said, closest to the earth. Their perfume is complex, not sugar. Closer to flesh, the flesh of a loved one, not sanitized, not anodine, but full of many waters. Strawberries in spring, strawberries and musk, strawberries and sex flooded back as I crushed my tongue to sugar. I'd come to that country hardly daring for bitter green, and here, now, this rupturing sweetness. I couldn't remember what hour it was, how many time zones I'd crossed, when I'd last eaten. For years I'd fed, survived, swallowed my portions of gray. But had I hungered for pleasure? Go light, 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 said the pastry chef. Not too hard, the touch. So I simmered the fruit with sugar, eased together a batter, barely stirring. The shortcakes came whispering from the oven, pale mounds, uncompromised. I slipped fingers into their heat. Outside, the grass was scant and dead, and below my pane of mountain sky, smog clung to the lowlands like scum on stalk, one unending gray season. But on my tongue, it was summer and it was spring, and seasons flourished and vines ran high. Butter and fruit, my mouth an orchard in the sun. I lowered the heat to a simmer and waited for my compote to cook down. Even waiting was sweet, the exquisite and long forgotten flesh of desire withheld, looking through me as I waited to learn how what I made would be received. When I woke, it was dark and my neck spasmed from sleeping at the base of the stove. Night had fallen, fallen down. The air smelled scorched, evil. Calmly, I understood that I must be in hell, that the clear sky, kitchen, Fruit had been a dream of the dead. I was where I deserved to be, burnt to a crisp in Los Angeles. I stood. The compote had reduced to black tar. Someone had switched off the stove. My shortcakes were gone, and I stumbled to the door to see a car reversing down the drive. Wait, I called. Wind stole my breath. What do I do now? The car was turning, departing, and suddenly a great desolation filled my lungs, black and stiff, and I lost all sense of dignity as I ran headlong down the drive, screaming as I hadn't screamed when I read the lawyer's letter, loud enough to make my vision flicker as I flung my voice across that strange country. An arm emerged from the car, broad shoulders, a pale suit. My employer, I knew it must be him, flung an object into the dark. 
It was a shortcake, more pattered down. He did not taste them that I saw. And I saw through that impossibly crisp mountain air that freezes each detail in pitiless clarity, one black eye. It was not a man's eye, not at all. It was the eye of a sturgeon or a shark, those deep water creatures of the cold whose forms have remained unchanged for millions of years, static through the fracturing of eons. It was an eye to outlast the end of the world, and I still think of it with amazement. I still think that despite all evidence, an eye like that cannot be kept dead. The car disappeared from view. I fought to breathe. Above me, the first stars were white ashes scattered over the burnt black sky. The yoke of the moon throbbed, broken. Never had everything seemed so close and so far. I think that question of ambition is a really interesting one because um, I, I suppose one of the faults that sort of speculative or science fiction often has, particularly when it's dealing with some sort of a apocalyptic situation or catastrophic situation is to kind of assume that that is entirely all-encompassing and people's everyday concerns or life 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 concerns are in some way sort of completely subordinated to that and so there's a moment where um where you write where, where she says america plunged into famine while my career hung suspended by the sea and my first reaction to that as a reader i have to admit was like oh hang on come on you're not going to make an equivalence between these two and then I realized, actually, that is actually kind of the way we do things. Right? Just because there is this kind of catastrophic situation with the smog, it doesn't mean that there are not going to be young people trying to make their way in the world and people sort of acting as they did before in the in this kind of radically changed context, in a way. Was that for you a difficult balance to strike as a writer, not to get sort of too overwhelmed by the the context you have created and to keep the character kind of grounded in these these everyday concerns. Yeah, I love that you uh, noticed that. <laughs> I, I do think that a lot of dystopian fiction seems to me to oftentimes be written from starting from the world and then putting mm. characters within it. And for me, it was the opposite process. There was this character, there was this voice, um, and then there was the setting that sort of like spilled out of her. Um, and I don't know that I could have written this book in the same way five years ago, but living through the pandemic really radically reoriented um, my understanding of how humans function in mm. a global catastrophe, right? It, one of the sort of strangest and, and most unsettling parts of living through COVID in 2020 and 2021 was this feeling of uh, abstraction to a mm. lot of the misery that was happening. Like it, certainly bothered me. I lost sleep over it. I was trying to sort of contribute to relief funds and making mm -hmm. sure I knew what was happening and all that. But at the same time, it felt very, very, very far away. And so, you know, I would bet that if you asked the average person to, re to recall a memory of that time, it isn't like seeing, you know, bodies mm. piling up in an ICU unless they were in a medical profession. Of course. It would be you know, being depressed while baking bread, it would be, yeah. you know, having a strange phone call with many technical difficulties mm. with their mother who they can't see who's 2000 miles away, right? There is that kind of odd durability to 
the smallness of human life, mm -hmm. even in catastrophe. And I certainly would not have framed it in this way um, before 2020. And I think one of the um, expressions I never expected to hear, but I have heard people use, and I think maybe even use myself, is uh, that people you know say they've had a good pandemic. And that might be because you know their, their conditions were fine and they got to spend more time with their kids or their family than they would have done otherwise from their high pressure jobs or things like that. And I think until you live through a moment like that, it's difficult to to make the difference between uh, the sort of the global experience and the personal experience. But what became very clear very quickly in that situation was yeah. that sort of, yeah, different people, of course, were going to have different experiences based on the conditions of their lives. Right. And I also think that that points to something that I'm really interested in, which is the fact that catastrophe and disaster are, you know, horrible to live through. And at the same time, they can be these like really sharp hinge moments in mm -hmm. our lives where, um, you know, if you think about your friends who during the pandemic in isolation spent much more time, you know, knitting or baking uh -huh. <laughs> bread or whatnot, who suddenly came out of the pandemic and did not go back to their previous mm -hmm. lives, right? Because maybe they discovered that, in fact, they did not like going out with their friends almost mm -hmm. every day of the week. They liked being alone. And so it's also this sort of catastrophe provides this sort of fertile moment for self-realization and self-discovery. Mm -hmm. And certainly it does so for the chef in my novel in her isolation. And I became really curious about this question, which I think is especially pertinent to women um, and to women of color and to women working in service uh, positions, which is what do you actually want for yourself when mm. the rest of the world is no longer looking and some of the external forces that um, sort of move you through, shuttle you through everyday life are gone? What do you want? Mm. And do you think for um, your narrator, uh, because of the context she moves into, which I want to come on to talk about, which is this kind of uh, almost this kind of triangulated uh, situation with the the man who employs her and uh, and his daughter. Um, do you think that becomes a, uh, a sense of a genuine choice for her, or do you think she moves maybe from one sort of restrictive situation to to another, equally but differently restrictive? Yeah, that's such a great question. Yeah, she moves from a, certainly from a very restrictive restrictive um, position in this dying world where her career is dying and into this one that this position that at first seems seems so abundant, right? Mm -hmm. um, abundant with crops, with foods, with uh, sort of high cost ingredients and sunlight. But you're right in that even that role starts to chafe at her, right? She mm -hmm. starts to realize that um, even this role that sounds so desirable on paper is still some kind of slot that she's mm -hmm. being forced to fit into in her particular case without spoiling too much of the book. Um, there are assumptions made about her value as an Asian woman, mm -hmm. um, assumptions made about her value as someone who has been hired to cook this very Eurocentric, Francophilic cuisine. Um, and she sort of starts to question if those values for which those values that she has been brought onto the mountain for are her own. So um, it is it is interesting because I think a lot of the book is about identity mm -hmm. um, and about sort of trying on different um, labels that other people put on you or even that you put on yourself and sort of coming to define uh, those roles mm -hmm. in your own terms.
Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the things that surprised me, and this comes back, I guess, to um, the question I asked about, uh, you know, the yeah, the, you know, maintaining ambition in the in the climate catastrophe, is that when she does move to the commune, and she does enter into a you know, pretty close relationship, both with with the the the, the father daughter at the at the heart of this, I, I I suppose I was surprised at how personal her contact with the the wealthy was because in in many ways this is there's you know there's certainly one of the elements of this book is a it could be seen as like a satire on wealth or a sort of a critique of a certain a certain type of wealth and yet i suppose the easy way to do that would be from a distance with the kind of slightly dehumanizing role of seeing them as these kind of distant unreachable kind of figures but that's not your approach in fact you put them Right up, are very, very close to these um, these two characters. Was it always important for you to have that sort of to show the very human side to immense wealth? That's a very incisive question because I don't think it was as important to mm. me at the start of this project. I would say that the first couple of drafts of the novel um, rendered the the wealthy characters as much flatter creations and mm-hmm. the employer specifically as more of a just a straightforward villain almost mm-hmm. um, and that was fine for the first draft but I do think that for any novel to reach towards the greatness and depth you can't see any of your characters as less than fully human mm-hmm. which is not to say that um, you know I if they were real, that I would approve of or forgive all the sort of transgresses and the misuses of power that certainly happen on the mountainside. But at the same time, I needed to see why people would make these kinds of decisions, even Mm -hmm. decisions that seem wrong, that seem suspect. I needed to sort of understand what kinds of very real human urges, because they are still very human urges, Mm -hmm. if twisted. Um, that drive people to do these things. And so it was impossible to write the kind of book I wanted um, and write it in this kind of like cold, clinical, distant satire. Mm. And I do think that there are also different modes, right? Because though uh, the chef becomes close to her employer and his daughter, there are also many other wealthy denizens on this mountain Mm -hmm. that she does not know. And there's a more, I think, like a different distance um, between her and some of the other characters that she doesn't know personally. So there's this kind of strange like push and pull because wealth mm. is absurd, certainly at times, and it is also seductive, um, right? And so she like kind of moves between these poles, as I think a lot of us do. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I like that idea of, the, of wealth as being seductive as well, because it and it's not, certainly not in this novel, not seductive in the way of like, I guess, the acquisitional way we think of wealth like it's not seductive because of what it allows you to buy but in a weird kind of way of what it allows you to experience and again not so much again experiencing well i mean there's a question there's a character of kandinsky who we're maybe coming to talk about who it is about a kind of an acquisition of experience but in a weird way i think what our narrator finds seductive about it in the condition she finds herself is that the wealth of her employer and the employer's daughter almost allows them to be human perhaps in a way that is denied other people in this catastrophe does that does that sound fair yeah simply put it's a world where many of the things we take for granted like simply being able to walk out on the street and see the sun Mm -hmm. are no longer um, available to the majority of humans so you are absolutely right in that 
the baseline in the world of the novel is simply that having wealth allows you to just be mm. human in the way that we understand it right now. Mm. And that is such a, that comes to be such a luxury in the novel. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that it allows um, to the, so the daughter, so Aida, is to um, indulge her scientific curiosity. Um, and again, I'm going to I'm going to tread very lightly and I'll let you sort of fill in the details because you're you're much more expert in knowing what would be a, um, what would be a spoiler, what you do and you don't want to uh, reveal. But um, could you just talk a little bit about that side of the novel? So as well as this, you know, this. Uh, sort of, I guess, this playground for for rich people where they can eat what they want and experience things that other people can't. There's also this 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 kind of flip side to to the land of milk and honey. This experiment on a mountain. Yeah. So Aida is the daughter of the employer, and she is um, extremely wealthy. Grew up extremely privileged. Is a, a real genius with genetics, and mm. she has this vision of what she considers to be saving some version of the world, right? Because this is a world in which um, and the die-off of animal and plant species is happening at an even more acute rate than our mm-hmm. own. So she is she has given herself sort of this task with saving or preserving or sort of even bringing back whatever she can. Um, and I found her really fascinating because in some ways she looks like the opposite of our chef narrator, right? She is, she's half Asian. Um, she's a woman who seems to have everything at her fingertips, who can just sort of enact the vision of uh, the world that she wants, who can be exactly who she wants to be because like power and wealth sort of free her from a lot of the ordinary constrictions. Um, and in her mind, she is doing a good act, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm, I was fascinated by this idea of a kind of enormous human hubris mm-hmm. made possible through science or environmental science or this idea of humans saving the planet, right? Um, I've always been fascinated by the sort of language and narrative around mm-hmm. environmental legislation. Um, you know, don't get me wrong, I definitely think we should be doing more to divorce ourselves from fossil fuels and do what we can to mitigate um, the harm that's being done. But at the same time, environmentalism is so human centric, mm. right? Um, mm. Because at the end of the day, if we humans, God forbid, really mess things up and killed ourselves as a species, the planet would be totally fine without us. The planet is incredibly durable and powerful and it will come back fine without us, right? So I was just like fascinated by this, like how this kind of planetary savior complex Mm. um, might manifest in someone and how this, this sort of combination of feeling a great weight of responsibility and a sort of great arrogance, um, Mm might come to play and I do certainly think come comes to play in some of the very wealthy in our day and age as well right hmm. I think there's 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 definitely something which is connected to um hubris and I think sort of I don't know some, something connected to sort of these these sort of these base human urges and desires which we um which we we have difficulty acknowledging in ourselves. Um, there's a moment where um, you're writing about the, um, if I remember rightly, it's the 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 place where the sort of the seeds are stored, or where sort of genetic 
material is stored from from lost species of seeds and animals and things like that. And you're writing about, so you write, I knew then why the storerooms were guarded as if they held gold or nuclear armaments. They hid something rarer still, a passage back through time. And that idea of reversing time seems very present in the novel, whether that's in Aida's attempts to, you know, to bring back different species or cultivate different species of plant or animal, or whether that's in the experience of several of the characters and food, actually, of kind of of kind of tapping into not the finest ingredients in the world or the most spectacular experience, but sort of in a sense refinding an experience with food that they had when they were when they were children or teenagers. Yeah. Um, I have been fascinated for a long time by the sort of powers and dangers of a kind of nostalgia or this kind of stubborn hold on something that we think is disappearing and that we Mm -hmm. must preserve in exactly that same way, right? I think in the past couple of years, there's certainly been enough talk about the dangers of nostalgia from a sort of race perspective, Mm. especially in the United States, this sort of desire to go back to like a golden age that was not golden for the majority of the minority Mm. population. Um, But I've come to wonder about that from the climate change perspective as well, right? Mm. Um, Certainly, again, I think that there, we can all afford to think a little bit more about what we're losing and, and not sort of move blindly forward with our kind of level of consumption. But at the same time, if we are using all of our energy, all of our sort of attention span to sort of mourn what mm-hmm. we are have lost or are on the verge of losing, how much space that, does that give us to acknowledge what's happening right now and to sort of move forward, right? Um, How much space does that give us to see sort of other possibilities that might be opening up as well? Mm -hmm. So so in fact, it could could even act as maybe an an obstacle to finding the solutions to the problems that we have. Yeah, certainly, because I do think the solutions aren't, I mean, at this point, like we're never going to get back exactly what we had. It's just Mm -hmm. not possible anymore. And if that's the criteria that you're holding on to it kind of makes progress impossible it's sort of paralyzing yeah 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 but that's a the the wild thing and i think that's why this this works is such good kind of grist for a novel as well is that sort of in in many ways getting back to that past is what's behind so many uh so many great novels you know from great stories you know from from homer you know right up till to now this kind of this desire to return to some sort of feeling of home i guess is mm. so overwhelming in the human spirit but perhaps um yeah perhaps more destructive than we we always allow yeah um, it's it's a yeah it's a difficult concept um that sort of idea of like can't yeah can you go home again Um, And increasingly, I've come to believe that you can't or that home is something that will continuously be redefined. Mm -hmm. Concerning, um, I'd like to uh, come back to the subject of food, because um, I thought when 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 I tend to when I write about something, I kind of feel that I come to a different understanding of the thing I'm writing about through the writing. And often when the, the piece is finished, I'll have a sense of oh, I didn't realise I thought that or I didn't realise this subject matter contained this within it. Um, as I was reading Land of Milk and Honey, I was writing down sort of on a, in my notebook all the different 
sort of connotations of food. Um, so there are connections between food and sex. There are connections between food and religion. There are connections between food and love. There are connections between food and death. Uh, there are connections between food and loss. There are connections between food and home. Um, and I think I probably stopped keeping my list at, uh, at this point. Um, I think one thing that highlights is just how how essential food is, because all of these connections you draw rang true. But I was curious to know, did you have this understanding of food as being such a container for our lives when you set out on this novel? Or in the writing, did you come to understand the, the importance and the centrality of food um, much better? Hmm, that's such a good question. I think that on a subconscious level, I probably understood that food had all these connections. Um, eating has always been, for the last decade or so of my life, has been the sort of easiest way to shake off all of my, yeah, my concerns and just like live in my body and inhabit my body. And in that, in that way, I think that food often, often functions as this like portal to your innermost needs and your innermost self, um, which is why it becomes associated in the novel with all these like really powerful concepts like grief and love and home and death. Um, but I would say that writing the novel did certainly reconfigure my understanding of food. The way it changed the most was in my conception of food's value. Um, I would say that, you know, the the chef cooks this Franco-Philic uh, European hot fine dining food. Mm. And at the start of the novel, she really believes that that is sort of the pinnacle of cuisine, that like if you were to create the perfect image of a perfect meal, that is what it would look like. Um, and these are, this, that's a cultural hierarchy that's embedded within most of us who live in the Western world, right? Um, what came into my head when I was working on this novel was why are most Americans and I think um, British folk as well, why would they be largely okay with being charged with like say $60 for a chicken dish at a French mm -hmm. restaurant. But if you ask them to pay more than 15 for a chicken dish at a Chinese restaurant, they're going to balk. And that mm -hmm. difference in perceived value is just literally the difference between the perceived value of that culture and mm -hmm. of the people who make it as well right and so it was writing this novel helped me realize how so many of the beliefs i hold around food and what is worthy and what is desirable food are embedded in these like frankly imperialist uh, systems that i have unthinkingly absorbed into myself mm. um and so to me my my definition of food that has value became Food that really has emotional value, right? Mm. And certainly you can find emotional value in like a beautiful fine dining meal. Like one of the most transformative meals I had in my early adulthood was at a Michelin starred restaurant called Atelier Crenn mm. in San Francisco, where the chef who is French, she's a woman, um, literally sort of writes her menu as a poem. And it mm. is like a pay into the artistry of food and that kind of like sensual and intellectual experience. And that's one kind of experience I value. But I also equally 
value the experience of eating, frankly, like kind of bad food that's mm -hmm. made by my grandmother in a very, very particular way, because I can feel her care. I can feel her intentionality behind it. Um, I can feel how it evokes so many memories for me. Mm -hmm. um, and so writing this book really shifted my relationship with most of the food I eat. I think I eat much more mindfully, mm -hmm. despite the you know dollar value of what I'm consuming and I eat with just like a greater desire to have like the entire spectrum of food uh, experiences. Like I don't beat myself up for the days when, you know, dinner is like a bag of chips. I'm like, okay, this is what I needed today. <laughs> and the bag of chips is giving me something. Mm -hmm. On that, that, that idea, I guess, of kind of perspective, um, it brings me to the thing I'd like to finish on, which I'm again, I'm going to tread carefully because I don't want to give any spoilers, but it's also, apparent from the first page that the narrator is looking back on this experience that she is talking about from quite a distance. So even though we don't know if the ending is a happy or a sad one or anything like that, we know that at least she has continued to survive in a world, you know, let's say several decades perhaps beyond, uh, beyond these events. Um, I did wonder, like I have a terrible habit sometimes of sort of projecting motivations onto <laughs> onto writers, but I did wonder when I read that whether that was in in part a kind of a uh, a sort of a, a way for you to allow yourself to uh, a bit of space from some of the the sort of the the horrors and the sort of the the trauma of the the situation you were writing about to give. Um, to give the this this right this narrator some distance from the events, or was there something else that that lay behind it for you? Yeah. So one of the books that inspired at least sort of the beginning of the novel and the way I put it together was *The Lover* by Marguerite Duras, mm, which is course, told yeah. similarly in a framed perspective of an older woman looking back on a really transformative year in in her in her life. And along with the Dura, I also found myself reading during the pandemic a lot of biographies of women writers and artists. And I think that quite simply, I needed reassurance and I needed proof that um, these women could live through immense difficulty, war, heartbreak, loss, and come out of those hard times making wonderful art, not exactly of the time, but that those moments of difficulty could be fertile in their own ways, that you could survive them and then thrive. Um, and so that framing was really important to me in this novel. And I think that also providing that framing allowed me to have that, that year that's told um, as a memory to be even more hyper-saturated with emotion. Um, and that's also a cue I took from The Lover, right? Where you have the sort of comfortable understanding of the reader that this is a framed perspective, but then mm -hmm. because of that, you're able to go even more extreme into mm -hmm. the emotional highs and lows. I think there's something really beautiful about telling a story in the retrospective because we all know that we're not sort of accurate stewards of our own, me own memories, right? We sure. all, we don't forget, we don't remember everything well. What you, what gets filtered out with time um, is anything that didn't feel important. So you mm. remember all the exquisite emotional highs and the ecstasies. You remember the most devastating lows and anything that's not important to you just disappears. And so there's like a really beautiful concentrated quality mm. 
mm-hmm. to memory and to a story told through memory that I wanted to access. I really wanted um, the reader to feel like they were plunged right into the heart and the body of this narrator during this intense period of her life. Mm-hmm. And I can say we um, we definitely feel that. Um, Land of Milk and Honey is, uh, of course, available from Shakespeare and Company. We have piles of it downstairs in our bricks and mortar store. We also have it available from our website. Um, and of course, you can pick it up uh, on both sides of the Atlantic from your local independent bookstore, uh, wherever that may be. Um, all that remains for me to say is, Sipam Zhang, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just €3 Euro a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album, Play It Gentle, is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening.